Happy Easter. Our passage this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 20, one of the resurrection accounts, and John gives to us a glimpse of part of what happened on that morning that none of the other Gospel writers tell us of, but it's particularly important, I think. Young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen for one thing this morning. What happened when they got to the tomb? You could answer that in a number of ways, but whatever you decide... Answer the question, what happened when the disciples arrived at the tomb? This is the good news of Jesus, the risen Lord. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. We're no different than these three, Lord Jesus, Mary and John and Peter. We have come this morning urgently to make sense of what the resurrection means. And how is it to change us? So often, Lord, we believe that you were truly raised, but not that we are truly raised with you. And we pray that you'd forgive us. And change our minds and change our hearts over this matter this morning. Use this passage and these three of your servants to do it. And give to us endless risen joy from it. For all of this we'll give you thanks and we ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? John, who was younger, was faster, but Peter was more desperate to arrive. And we know this because when they came to Joseph of Arimathea's garden, where Joseph's tomb had been offered for Jesus' use, John stopped at the door, but Peter, heaving and panting, and sides aching like he'd been kidney-punched, ran right in. He was doubled over, trying to catch his breath, squinting to see what little he could. Of course, it was Peter who ran into the tomb, because after all, it was Peter who got out of the boat and walked to Jesus on the water one night on the Galilean Sea. Of course, it was Peter who who bolted into the tomb because, after all, it was Peter who always broke the awkward silences when Jesus asked, 
one of his kingdom questions. And sometimes Peter answered well and felt good about himself. And most of the time, Peter's wrong and passionate answers left him fuming with embarrassment. Of course it was Peter who plunged into the tomb because it was Peter who swore that Jesus who knew so much was dead wrong in his prophecy that Peter would give him up before the rooster crowed the dawn. Of course it was Peter because it was Peter who was on his hands and knees vomiting the bile of his anguish behind the chief priest's house on the night that Jesus' prophecy was proved right. And the bloody rooster had the nerve to jump down from the rooftop and strut by him in judgment as he retched out his failure. Of course, it's Peter who reaches the tomb and runs right in. There's a lot of running in this passage. The only other mention of anyone running in all of the Gospels is Matthew 28. We opened our service with the reading. The women all together, the group of them, run from the tomb to bring news of the resurrection. In both Gospels, the friends of Jesus are running to lose something. The women in Matthew 28 run to lose the sorrow of the last three days. In John's Gospel, Mary runs to find John and Peter and lose her confusion over the opened tomb and the absent body. John runs to lose his uncertainty at Mary's rumor. Peter. Well, Peter's more complicated. I think Peter might have been running to lose himself. I think Peter ran for punishing penance. Maybe Peter was running hoping that he'd have a heart attack. There's a fighter who lives in my neighborhood, and sometimes I catch him out training. And he carries a railroad tie across his shoulders and hangs milk jugs filled with water from either end of it and then chains a stack of 45-pound plates to his waist and drags them on casters behind him as he runs our streets. And I think Peter runs like that. Peter runs for pain, not to avoid it. Peter runs to make his heaviness heavier. He runs to feel the suffering he caused Jesus. He runs to lose his view of himself as Jesus' beloved friend. He runs to lose the right to have ever been loved by Jesus at all. Peter runs to the robbed tomb to face the full loss of his betrayal. The complete loss of his friend now. Not just a beautiful life ended early. But now there's not even a body left to visit. It's the full loss of hope. The full loss of his heart. And that's one of the reasons we see the different responses upon arriving at the tomb. John stops at the doorway, not sure he wants to encounter whatever is beyond the threshold. And Peter charges in for whatever rough, unspeakable thing awaits. His failed love for Jesus, after he boasted that it would last all the way to death. Now that failed love for Jesus in aching helplessness 
comes out as Peter runs because all he wants to do is die. And maybe whatever is in that tomb will do him the favor and swallow him up and close the door behind him. But that's not what Peter finds when he enters. Inside, his senses are swimming. Peter sees the burial wrappings. The linen strips in an unmummied heap. And the face cloth, the shroud, folded up, left on the burial slab. Like the tenant of this place had no use for these things anymore. He didn't just escape. He was leaving on his own terms. He left not by luck, but because he was ready. He was finished here. He was utterly done in this place. And Peter hears nothing. But it's the nothing of utter peace, not the nothing of smothering mortality. And Peter smells not the taint of death, not the sourness of ended dreams and hopes and love. He smells the morning air. A new day filled with new mercies. The problem for all three people in the passage, Mary, John, and Peter, is that all three of them have a wrong view of death. Mary and John don't want to die from their confusion and uncertainty. And Peter does want to die in his guilt and shame and leave it at that. And the gospel is neither. The gospel isn't not dying. And the gospel isn't despondently giving yourself up for dead and staying that way. There's a popular theological writer who has a famous description of the gospel, a famous illustration of it, and he storyboards it like a scene from a movie being filmed. So the director calls for action, and the camera pans across a beach where people are lounging and sunning themselves. Some are playing in the sand, others are out in the surf. And the serenity of the scene is broken by a distress call. Someone out in the water is struggling and sinking, And the lifeguard, the Christ figure. For simplicity, let's just say it's Jesus cast as himself. Leaps out of the lifeguard chair and bounds into the surf. And swims with powerful strokes to the sinking one. And wraps that one up in sure arms. And hauls the drowning one out to shore. Panting and fatigued and coughing up a bit of salt water, but otherwise happy and safe. It's the Hollywood ending of the gospel. It's formulaic and predictable and it's sure to bring in big bucks at the summer box office. But it isn't at all satisfying. And the director yells, cut! It's all wrong, we have to do it again. Some of us who have been around in the gospel a bit longer would rewrite the scene this way. Cameras roll, panting, panning rather across the beach, sun, people, sand, playing, swimming. The distress call goes out and now there's a drowning victim. And Jesus is in the surf, cutting through the water, catching the drowning one in strong arms. And now throwing the drowning one out to shore while Jesus sinks alone to the bottom. It cost Jesus dearly, but he saved the one in need. he, He saved the one and sent that one back to his life much as he lived it before. A little more grateful, perhaps, 
But still, that one has been returned to the life that was slipping away under the waves. And the director calls, no, it's still wrong, let's do it again. We have one more take, action, the beach, sun, people tanning, playing, swimming, cries for help, sinking. Jesus swimming out to the drowning one, wrapping that one up in strong, redeeming arms. And they both sink, and they both remain on the bottom. And the director calls, cut. It's a wrap. Good work, everyone. We got it. And believe it or not, that is the gospel. To be airless and rigid and heavy and pinned by the pressure, dragging the bottom as cold, dark currents move you like a ghostly frond of coral, but unable to move by your own current. And the dense, watery silence and barrier cut you off from all that you were before. And you don't have the heart or the will or the hope or the strength to push off from the bottom and make the surface on your own. But Jesus is dragging the bottom with you. He's hovering and still and just as airless as you are. And then when death is as dead as dead can be, when death can do no more to you, when death can take no more from you, Then Jesus reignites his will and oxygenates his blood and regathers his strength and takes hold of you and swims you to the top and reanimates you there. But the joy of the gospel is utterly dying. It's not spared dying, it's dying all the way. Because you must remember that resurrection is not a near-death experience. Resurrection is a full death experience broken up by a fuller life experience in Jesus. Which means only this. Peter has a lot of dying to do when he arrives at the tomb. He hasn't died yet. That's exactly what happens when Peter runs into the tomb and he walks out again. It's a dramatic representation that in Jesus... Peter is undergoing the necessary dying and rising, not physically, but really and personally, existentially, spiritually, volitionally, emotionally. There is perhaps nothing more difficult for Christians in all the world than to talk about our resurrection in Christ Jesus. It's easier for us to talk about things like theoretical physics even if we're not physicists. At least physics has concepts and analogies, numbers, figures, formulas. The resurrection has none of those things. It's entirely foreign to our world. It's entirely foreign to our experience. It's entirely foreign to nature. Because on the third day, in the black hole of his tomb... When Jesus, by his own authority, pushed up out of deadness and regenerated himself. With amino acids rekindled, John Updike writes in his poem, Seven Stanzas for Easter. With molecules re-knit, Updike says. With his biochemistry cooking again and synapses firing out electrochemical impulses. From the first twitch in his limbs, 
followed by the first compound movement of sitting up. And then followed by another standing up and removing his own burial dress. And then patting the inside wall of the tomb in pity. When Jesus did all of that, the universe was restarted. The universe had not moved in three days. It had come to a full stop. It was holding its breath, waiting for instructions from its Lord. When Jesus reanimated himself, the universe was restarted. The gears began to move, but this time it was moving backward, not like the first time, from the garden to the grave because of sin. But now with sin's defeat and the dying and rising of Jesus, the universe is moving in reverse from the grave to glory. C.S. Lewis calls it a mad rush of matter out of chaos into holy composition. There's a, a wonderful comic scene in Oscar Wilde's play Salome when Herod the king hears about Jesus' ministry from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he asks his advisors about what Jesus is doing. He wants the details. And his advisors report that Jesus is healing the sick and he's bouncing demons out of people like unwelcome trespassers. And Herod's thrilled. These things are great for the morale of his kingdom. But then the advisors report that Jesus is even raising the dead. Can you believe it? He raises dead people. And Herod flies into a blue rage. He raises the dead. I do not wish him to do that. I forbid him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. This man must be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. One who can push death back on itself, one who can reverse death, can't be defeated or threatened or stopped. And Jesus rising from the dead means that all the old powers and authorities that have ruined our hearts are slipping. But in our confusion and discomfort over the resurrection, this, this thing that doesn't fit in our world, this thing that will end up bursting our world at the seams and making it a very different world entirely. In our confusion over it, we end up pushing it away, not in rejection, but in postponement, like Mary and Martha, the friends of Jesus. When Jesus turns up for the funeral of their dead brother Lazarus, and he's talking to them about the resurrection, the baffled sisters say... Well, yes, Lord, we know that our brother will be raised in the last day. And that's the way we treat the resurrection. It's a far-off fairy tale we tell ourselves for comfort at the deaths of our loved ones. But it's heresy, utter heresy to say, or to not say and simply believe, that resurrection is only for the end. It's orthodoxy and gospel to say that resurrection is full at the end, but resurrection has begun for us now. And I want you to know that Mary and John and Peter had to live with the resurrection in the same way that you have to live with it, in the midst of lives already in progress. 
the most thrilling and dangerous and world-disrupting verse of the passage is not Mary coming upon the open tomb or the disciples in a foot race or the burial clothes heaped and folded, but the last verse of the section. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Oh, it's beautiful because it means you're not alone. They had to figure out what the resurrection meant for their everyday lives, just like you. Whatever this thing was, it would go with them because it would go in them. Whatever this thing is, it will go with you because it will go in you. Or let's say it this way. What the accounts of Jesus' resurrection give us, what the accounts send us home with, are not evidences of his historical bodily rising. That accomplishes nothing. What the accounts give us are the effects of his historical bodily rising being worked out in the lives of believers. Very helpfully, very encouragingly, the passage says they saw and believed, but they didn't believe everything they would come to believe about it. The text tells us they still didn't understand the scriptures. They didn't understand what Jesus had said to them about the resurrection. They didn't understand how it worked, what it would look like, what it would feel like, what it would do with them. There would be growth in their application of it, just like for you. The story does hint at the interruption brought to a life already in progress by Jesus' rising. Peter runs with his heavy footfalls right into the tomb, which is significant because by Jewish law, Peter is now unclean. Going into the presence of death. You don't have to touch a dead body. Just by being in a room where death was housed, you would be unclean. The condition of uncleanness was meant to demonstrate the full rotting effect of our sin. And it was meant to teach us that we can't live as rancid things with a pure God unless He purifies us out of His own purity somehow. By running into the tomb, Peter would have to undertake involved purification rites, washings, abstentions. He'd have to remove himself from other people for seven days. Sacrifices would have to be made. Peace offerings would have to be given. Did Peter forget the law when he plunged into the tomb? No, he he didn't forget. To be mindful of the perils of uncleanness before a holy God was driven into the Jewish consciousness. And you see it in John who stops at the door. Peter didn't forget, he just didn't care. He was already unclean. External uncleanness was the least of his worries. He was unclean in his heart, in his blood, in his being. So why not just go ahead and make himself as fully unclean as he already knew himself to be? But running into the vacated tomb, Peter isn't made more unclean. Remember, it's all now working in reverse order. Peter lost his uncleanness. Because this is the place where Jesus engulfed himself in our uncleanness. 
And he stood up out of it. He shed it like burial wrappings left discarded on the floor. The risen Jesus is the only cleanness for unclean people. Peter's defilement dropped from him as he crossed the threshold. And Peter lost his failure when he entered the tomb. Jesus reversed the effects of Peter's failure. And he lost his guilt. And he lost his unfaithfulness. And he lost his disloyalties and his easy desertion. And he lost his shame and his self-hatred. All of which were still ringing shrilly in his heart like the rooster's shriek. And he had to lose his penance and his self-suffering. He could not punish his sin out of himself and have any of the benefit of what Jesus had done in this place. And he had to lose his worst fears and despair over who he was as a man. And he had to lose his worst fears and despair over who God is and who God is not. He walked into the tomb wearing all of these things, but he'd walk out wearing none of them. They would all unravel and lie like death clothes on the floor because... Those are the very things Jesus died to nullify in Peter's life. These are the very things that Jesus had risen to unclothe from Peter. Are you as Downton Abbey crazy as the rest of the known world? Have you watched the series on Masterpiece Theater? I'm a fan, I'm hooked. The story, the, the serial drama of the Earl of Grantham and the Countess and their three daughters, grown daughters of marrying age, and the Earl's mother, the Dowager Countess, played exquisitely by Maggie Smith. And then there's the Earl's cousin, Matthew, who by English law stands to be the heir of the entire estate that the family has owned for generations and generations. And there is a parallel drama that chronicles the lives of the family's servants, the butlers and the maids and the footmen and the cooks, whose lives intersect with the family, but they're sequestered away from their family, by the family rather, by their class and their position. They live beneath the family in all senses, positionally, in value, and even literally residing in the basement under the house in the servants' quarters. I always find the servants more interesting than the family itself. My favorite character is John Bates, Lord Grantham's valet. Now, we use the French pronunciation for the word. We say valet, and we've ruined the noun. In our world, a valet parks your car. But in the old days, a valet was in charge of a gentleman's wardrobe. He'd pick out clothes and make sure that they were detailed, and he'd lay them out. And the valet would actually do the job of dressing and undressing his master. A grown man would stand there like he was unable to put on and take off his own clothes. And another grown man would do it for him. And I love the scenes where Mr. Bates takes his brush and sweeps Lord Grantham's shoulders before he goes downstairs for dinner. And at the end of season two, 
I swiped Jennifer sitting on the couch with me and I said, I want a valet. (laughs) And she said, well, good luck. (laughs) And I said, well, why can't you do it? And that conversation didn't end well. But... (laughs) The notion's not wrong. It's a theological truth. It's a biblical truth. It's a gospel truth. Because in the resurrection, Jesus makes sure that we're suited properly, attired in the ongoing effects of his redemption. He clothes us and unclothes us. He robes us in life and strips us out of death. And as I think about us as a church family and a gathered people, I think we would grow most in the resurrection. We would enjoy it most. We would profit from it most if we thought about what Jesus wills to take off from us. The gospel of Easter is the gain of the resurrection is measured in what it causes us to lose. And you don't have any more to lose than Peter. And you certainly don't have any less. You have all the uncleanness and failure and guilt and unfaithfulness and disloyalty and shame and self-hatred and penance and self-purgings, self-pity, vanity, and the sorrows of self-absorption. Not legitimate sorrows, but the sorrows that never end. The sorrows that are self-consumed with the ecstasy of melancholy. Just like Peter, we have all of these same things to lose. His list reads very close to ours. And just like Peter, we're offended at a God whose sovereignty clashes with ours. And we're disappointed with a God who follows his desires, not ours. We're angry at the way he works and won't work in our lives. We're frustrated that Jesus lives by his own decree and not by our direction. We can't stand it that he exists by his own theology, his own self-revelation. And he won't let us rewrite him the way we want him to read. We're eaten up with resentment that he won't submit to us, but he insists that we'll be happy and joyful and peaceful and at rest if we'll submit to him. We can't bear his mysteries. We're displeased at his pleasures. And we're put out that his grace to us never looks the way we want it to look. And we're never able to rest in the fact To reconcile ourselves to the fact that because he is perfectly gracious, then he cannot be any more gracious to me than he is in this very moment. Even in the pain and discomfort of this moment, he is perfectly gracious to me. And all of it has to be wadded up and left on the floor of the tomb of Jesus. The good news of the passage is you get to go home, but all your deathly wrappings don't necessarily get to go home with you. They don't have any right to hold you. They don't have any claim on you. They can't rule you or define you. They don't own you. You can leave them all behind. 
And better still, when you wrap yourself wrongly in them again, and you will, when you go back to them and wear them again, and you give them a voice and a vote in your heart and your life and your identity, you can always return to the resurrection of Jesus and shed them all over again. You can go back to the risen Lord who will undress you again and make sure you are only suited in His love and His justification and atonement, His forgiveness, His wisdom, His truth, His righteousness, His beauty, His peace. When I was a child, every year my family would travel to South Florida to spend Easter with my grandparents. And Easter for me is the memory of hunting eggs in my grandfather's backyard while peacocks roamed the lawn. There were always peacocks at my grandfather's house. He didn't own them. They lived in the neighborhood, but he fed them, so they preferred his yard. Years later, in adulthood, I learned that the peacock is the ancient Christian symbol for the resurrection. We don't use it anymore, but the ancient Christians used it all the time. The symbolism comes from two features of the peacock's life. A peacock can eat venomous snakes and not be harmed. A beautiful image of what Jesus was able to do in his own righteous strength when he was put in the tomb. But secondly, and probably the one the church identified with most, is the fact that peacocks shed their tail feathers every year. And each year, as they grow new ones back, the new feathers come in with more vivid color and more defined markings and more iridescent in their luster. Just like the effects of the resurrection are to have in our lives. It used to be that the ancient church, or the earlier church, let's say, didn't decorate the worship space for Easter with cut bouquets of flowers. They had vases of peacock feathers. And it seems fitting, because just like the text says, you have to go home today... But you don't have to go home empty-handed, and you don't have to go home untouched, and you don't have to go home wearing your death rags. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and you're growing in your belief of his intent for you through it, you get to shed all your old, dull, ragged, flightless feathers, and you get to grow gorgeous new plumage in its place. But at least as Peter would tell us from this passage. The burial wrappings you've become accustomed to. And the burial wrappings you've even grown to love. They don't suit you anymore. Because Jesus is risen. And what happens to him must happen to you. You are risen with him. In the name of the Father who has chosen resurrection for his people. In the name of the Son who accomplished it. In the name of the Spirit who clothes us in it. Amen. Now, Lord Jesus, allow us to wear the resurrection. 
We love the rags of death. They are strangely and morbidly comforting to us. Like Peter, we have to lose them all. Leave them in an unraveled heap, discarded and unused on the floor at our feet. And allow us to walk in the light and the truth of Jesus who is raised. Wearing more and more his love and his wisdom and truth. His glory, his peace and his beauty. His justification and atonement and forgiveness. All the old rags we have loved over all these years. Make them more dissatisfying to us. And grant to us gospel of the risen Lord to wear in their place. On the third day, the women ran to the tomb to serve the body of their dead Lord with spices. But there is no dead body of our Lord to serve anymore. And so we serve our risen Lord by bringing gifts and thanksgivings to the offering box at the center of the theater. And the living Jesus will put them to use for his kingdom. If you have prayer requests, needs, or things that you wish to give thanks for, elders and pastors will meet you at the front and be glad to pray with you. Would you stand and continue to sing your joy to the 